0: where lust for a whole life and nothing but less makes people jump out of a comfortable pond into an unknown ocean. Welcome to that journey between the East and the West. Who says rolling stones don't gather moss? Hello everyone. I am Minu Gupta, your host for the day, and I'm delighted to have you join me every week as amazing people Share their incredible and inspiring life stories of straddling continents. Thank you. She worked across continents and cities, and she has courage, determination, and dreams. Otherwise, she would not have been able to do and achieve all that she has. Born and brought up in India, Reshma is an award-winning innovative leader based in Switzerland with more than two decades of experience working in multicultural teams and geographies, including the United States, Europe, Middle East, India, and Southeast Asia. She brings a wealth of experience in digital and business transformation and is working at the intersection of human capital and technology and is on the board of directors of multiple organizations. Besides being a TEDx speaker and many more things, too many things, otherwise I would not be able to wrap it up. (laughs) Reshma. <laughs> thank you for joining me today wonderful to be here really an honor uh, you are as i just mentioned to you before we started the first lady of asian origin that we are hosting on our podcast series between the east and the west who are you beyond the worldly labels and roles Roles that we all play in life as you as a mother, an employee or an employer and many other roles that the world puts on us and the wonderful labels that the world bestows on us. Who are you beyond that?
1: Uh, I would say, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind and always comes to my mind is a mom. I think I've definitely become a better person because of my boy. So the role that I'm most proud of, and if you ask me to really define who I am, I think that's the role that comes to me first. But as you rightly said at the introduction, I wear different hats. So I'm also a very proud wife. I'm a very proud daughter, a sister, a neighbor, a friend, uh, someone who contributes to the society. Then, of course, I have all of my corporate roles. So in all of that, I think it has been a discovery of who I am. So it's not necessarily the roles that define me. I think it comes down to who the person I am, what the values are. And that's also, as I said, it's really an honor to be here with you to speak about the East and West. So from where I grew up and I have lived in multiple countries, you know, to appreciate my roots as well. So in terms of who I am, I have to say I'm still discovering, apart from the roles, the person that I am. Because there is so much of learning that happens. And at the same time, there is so much of unlearning that happens.
0: That's a nice way of putting it, the unlearning which happens. So you did pick up some moss on your journey of life. And how did you end up in the Western part of the globe after your formative years in India? Do share a bit of your journey.
1: So I think I have to start with my formative years. I was born and I grew up in a tiny little village on the south side of India. And I have to say, you know, growing up back then, it was not the internet age. For those of them who is listening where, you know, everything today runs on the internet and you can Google everything. This was not the era that I grew up in. And the only way to know about anything that was outside of my village was actually through books. And I used to travel 25 kilometers in the Indian public transport to attend school. And we had a, fortunately, we had a good library with good books. So books mm-hmm. were a window to, let's say, I don't want to necessarily say the Western world, but a world that was different from mine. And I have to say, you know, if you had asked a 16-year-old me who finished school in that little village, I would have never told you that this is the this is journey that I have planned for myself. I think the only thing that I had back then, as well as a 16-year-old, to today, I'm in my 40s, is is a north. And the north, as I said, is really about learning and unlearning. So landing up where I have landed up now, and today I live in Switzerland, has not been a very planned journey. Opportunities took me, they were these were opportunities to grow, these were opportunities to get out of my comfort zone, these were opportunities where some were just out of ignorance, you just pack your bags and you go. And as a family, so both my husband and I, we like to travel. So, you know, and explore new places. So I would say it was not so much a planned journey, but it was very unplanned. But we have enjoyed the journey. I personally enjoyed the journey and I personally enjoyed the opportunity to, again, as I said, unlearn. So together with learning, it was always unlearning. And I would say, you know, one of the anecdotes I always give is it's every move has been an opportunity to leave the baggage, including my curtains. I could get new curtains. I've always looked at it as an opportunity to leave behind what what doesn't serve you. And embrace things that that actually helps you become a better person. So not really a planned journey to the West.
0: And learning. A very important process of learning from life and its phases. Reshma has taken the opportunity of every move to go beyond her comfort zones, unlearn, leave baggage and grow as a person. That's interesting about the uh, Baggage because it leaves you a bit freer to grow. Uh, grow. And so, not just in materially, but that's wise again. And how was the transition for you when you mentioned that it was in rural India? Then you must have also gone through several transitions, first from the rural to the urban area of India, and then from there outside. So, when did that first transition happened physically, and uh, when did the second transition from the East to the West happen? So that just understanding the time frame, though life is never linear, I've realized at my age, we think it is linear because there are certain things which happen like that, but it all comes together somewhere.
1: Exactly. And you know, I think uh, I like the way you ask it. It's not a transformative journey just because it was to the West. It is a transformative journey still. And it started with me moving out of my uh, village, right? So one of the things and very materialistically, one of the things that first struck me when I moved to one of the metro cities, Chennai, in India was There were no power cuts. There was electricity. I grew up in a village where there was no electricity or there was unreliable electricity. So a lot of my schoolwork was done under candlelight. And when I moved to Chennai for my college education, I suddenly realized that, you know, you could have uninterrupted power. So this was a huge, huge upgrade for me in my personal life. Apart from everything else, you know, the intellectual part of it is very different. But I would say materialistically or physically, this is something that completely uh, was new to me and an experience that I enjoyed, I have to say. Same way, you know, when we moved outside of India, so the first, first stop was actually the United States. I think uh, one of the things that uh, I personally enjoyed was the power of anonymity. So whether it was in the village that I grew up or whether it was in India, any city, and I've lived in multiple cities thanks to education and thanks to some of the jobs I had, there was always uh, a part of me which was non-anonymous. You know, if I would tell you, and it's the same you know, between us, if I would tell you, you know, which part of India I came from, you know the part because you, you have roots there as well. If I tell you which college I studied, you know the college. So in some way, people could still box me, people could still size me. So there was no, not the real sense of anonymity. So the when I moved to the United States, for me, it was a Again, uh, mentally, it was a very different experience because I had the power of anonymity. No one knew. I lost some privileges for sure, but no one knew when I said, you know, which part of India I came from, which college I attended, what's my first organization, what was my first job. It was literally, you know, starting from zero, which gave so much of a sense of freedom. I realized that I didn't have to be defined by who I am. I could actually define my path forward because I was actually literally starting from zero. A lot of people look at it as a bad thing because you lose everything that you have built up up until that point. And I was in my late 20s. So, you know, close to 30 years of life, if it's gone and you have to reset, it's actually a challenge for many people. For me, I embraced it as an opportunity and said, listen, this is a great way to actually define my path forward because I'm not defined by everything that comes with me up until now. So... In that sense, on my professional side, you know, I've studied civil engineering. I could actually let go of that and say, you know, I could do something completely different. So I moved into supply chain I moved into consulting. So it opened up a lot of doors for me because it was not looked at or I was not defined by everything that existed behind me. I had that power of anonymity. So that's something I would say was very liberating. And that's something that still stays with me. Again, of course, as I said, the negative side of it is you lose some of your privileges. But for me, I've always looked at it as challenges, as opportunities. And this has been the power of anonymity has been quite
0: liberating. Very interesting. I didn't hear that before. Then how were the challenges? Because as a woman of color, uh, and you mentioned you were in your late 20s or just at the brink of 30, how was that transition as a woman of color from Asia to Western world, be it United States or the other parts of the world that you afterwards went to?
1: So that's that's exactly what I was trying to say. You know, the part or the pro is actually you can start from wherever you define your start point because it's the future is yours. I think the con is that, you know, you are an outsider. You are an immigrant. You don't know anything about the country or at least not as much as people who have grown up. You are always an outsider, you look different, you speak different, you actually bring a different point of view. So I have to say all of these things were very intimidating, especially when I moved to Europe, where even language was different, to mainland Europe, where language was even different. I have to say it was quite intimidating and a part of me was lost. Simply because I just didn't know everywhere you show up, you know, be it a business meeting, be it a school parent teacher meeting, be it a communal meeting. Anywhere you go, you are the only there because you are the only woman of color. You're the only one and you just stand out. And I think for me, that was, as I said, it was very intimidating. I just didn't know how to deal with it, especially when people treat you as an outsider. And this is something, it took me a while to embrace it because I think what happened in that process of being an outsider is you try too hard to fit in. You try too hard to actually adopt the country's practices. And I'm not necessarily talking about integration because integration is definitely part of, you know, whichever city you want to leave in, you have to integrate. But it's not integrated at the cost of losing your identity. And I think I have gone through that phase where there was a borderline where I was losing my identity in, in terms of the fitting in, and it's not integration, and I make a very clear distinction on that, fitting in. I wanted to be accepted, I wanted to be liked, whether be it a corporate uh, workplace or the social settings, I wanted to be liked, I wanted to be accepted as who I am, and in that who I am, I lost my authentic who I am, and I started becoming someone who was struggling too hard to fit in. And this is a realization I'm very glad it came very early on. And I realized that, you know, if I don't like myself, there's no way anyone is going to like me. So I had to first like myself. Liking myself was embracing my roots, embracing the culture that I come from, you know, even if people don't understand. So, for example, you know, people may not necessarily understand the vegetarianism that we follow, but that's okay. And it's it's actually, it's good to uh, uh, embrace that and say, you know, we come from a part of the world where there are different food habits, where there are different ways of uh, doing things, where there are different um, ways of living. And it's, we need to accept that first. I need to accept that first. And it, I shouldn't be ashamed of that. And only then others can accept that. So that was a journey I went through. And I wouldn't say it was easy. It was tough. It was hard. As I said, you know, you know, you feel the loneliest when you lose yourself. So I have lost myself in that journey. And I had to Find myself again, and, and today I'm very comfortable with who I am. So I actually show up at uh, very public events in sari, and I'm I am very proud of that. This wouldn't have been me ten or fifteen years back, where, as I said, I had to find myself again.
0: That's again a very interesting journey, more from the inside than the outside, because it's the inside which shapes us. The influences can be. Similar here and there, it's in, inside with shapes up. And I totally get you when you say about the fitting in and non fitting in, because even though I had been shuttling back and forth between Europe and Asia since the, literally the beginning of my career, but living to, is a different journey than traveling, as we all know. And uh, I remember thinking, okay, I'm a square peg in a round hole. I have no intention of going in that hole. I'm going to make my own space, my own square space next to that hole. <laughs> so yeah, and I always stood out since the late 1990s as a vegan. In um, Imagine a vegan in a sausage eating country. <laughs> and I'm having the last laugh now because Germany is now leading the vegan revolution in the world. Has the largest number of vegans. Totally get your journey. Which places were you in Europe besides besides Switzerland? Right now you're in Zurich, but did you also live in other parts of Europe?
1: I've spent some time in England. I've spent some time in Sweden. And then, of course, the longest has been in Switzerland.
0: And it was a bit similar also there, the journey.
1: See, every country has a different way of uh, accepting and integrating foreigners into the society. So, uh, And every country has its own history to immigration. So if I take England, for instance, there is a long history. So I can't even say, you know, in England, is it the integration to the society of the English or is it the society of second generation immigrants? It's a mixed bag. Sweden is very different. Again, it's very Scandinavian, so more inclusive. Switzerland is probably one of the closed, closed circuits in that sense or closed countries when it comes to, you know, acceptance of foreigners. So although, and I was just looking at some statistics, although about 30 percent of the Swiss population is uh, immigrants, Mm -hmm. not all of them hold the Swiss passport because integration is tough and the fitting in is tough. So every country and, you know, I've also lived in different other countries before coming here. I think every country has a history in, in with respect to foreigners or immigration. And every country has a different way of treating people who come into the country. So my experiences have been different, but similar in the sense of, you know, you're always the only, except for England, where, of course, you are not the only because you, you see a lot of people, like you said, including the prime minister now.
0: Actually, yes. Uh, I I discovered India out of India when I had gone to London for a visit and I saw, oh, there, there are Indians everywhere. So am I in India? Am I in Delhi? So that feeling is different. Acceptance levels are different. And as you rightly said, integration and history. You've done a lot of analysis, my dear. You've done a lot of analysis inside and outside. Very interesting. What were the challenges in Asia, because I believe you also uh, were—you lived and worked in Southeast Asia and Middle East, the challenges there might have been different.
1: Absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, I think women across the world faces, of course, that we are women. And in some places, we are just not expected to show up. So when I started off my career in India, I was the first woman to join The industry that I joined in, I was the first woman to go to site in the organization that I joined in. So I I have actually worked at a construction site. And as I said, I have done civil engineering. So I started my career in uh, construction. So I was the first woman to go to construction site. When I moved to Southeast Asia, it was very similar. So I was leading the entire APAC for the strategy implementation. And this is something that they just didn't expect a woman to show up to lead the entire region. It was very similar in Middle East, where, you know, especially when you go for customer meetings back then, and I'm talking about 20 years back, you actually don't expect a woman to show up. So I think the the gender imbalance in the corporate world was much more pronounced in Asia when I worked back then. Probably it is similar today. And I would say when I moved to uh, the West. Although it was not the same, the gender imbalance probably was not the same or people were just not candid enough to say that on your face, it was very similar. There were meetings that i have, and even today, there are meetings that I joined where I'm the only woman, but it's probably, either it's probably not pronounced or I've just become more seasoned. You know, when you are in the industry for 20 plus years, 22 years now, it's just that you get used to it. You actually, I actually expect to be the only woman in the room when I show up for meetings. And then, when I find another woman, I'm just happy. So, but my expectation is that I'll be the only one. So, I've become more uh, seasoned, and probably the world has as well changed. I can't make a judgment of that now because mindset has completely changed.
0: But in India, see, what I see is the following regarding gender. So, do share with me and do go with me on this path where I'm just now going to go. I remember, as far as sectors are concerned, when I was in India, I, I do remember that there were many sectors there where, okay, there were women and ladies and at senior levels. And But yes, I remember when I led delegations that many years ago, international ones, most of my, I've led over a hundred delegations. And I, I still remember, probably I can count on my fingers, there were only once or twice I had a lady on my delegation because they were the top honchos in the country. So there were only a couple of times that it happened then. But what I discovered was the gender thing was more uh, there when it came to a sector, particular sector. So when I handled security, I probably, I was the only lady who ever did that that many years ago. They were surprised when I went to the largest prison in Asia, Tihar Jail. I turned up at Tihar Jail and uh, I turned up at Intelligence Bureau And when I went up to the RBI, they were like, why is this woman talking off? But what I discovered was very interesting. Nobody questioned. And now I'm thinking of all that because I never thought of gender back then in India. Nobody questioned. I was also very young. Uh, Yes, that was questioned sometimes. The age or the look, or I looked young, or what it was, I remember having that question. Gender was never, even though I might have been the only woman in the boardroom, nobody questioned that. The age sometimes came into question. I remember one of the delegations where Indians or Asians can be very um, straight sometimes. (laughs) So I remember one of them asking me, so how old are you? That kind of question, the gender question never came, though I could have been the only woman in the room. But now when I'm in Europe living there, not just traveling, I am sometimes surprised. There is a lot of brouhaha about gender imbalance, about pay inequity. And those questions about gender and pay never, ever occurred to me and I'm close to 30 years of professional experience, never occurred to me when I was in Asia, but I see and hear that now. So it could have been all our lives are islands, the ways we work, sectors we work, people whom we work with, and what we do in life. So I probably think probably I was in one of those islands. Could have been. Just share your thoughts on what I just, my experience, let me put it that way.
1: So, see, I think the fundamental difference here is uh, your home country versus a country that's that's not where you grew up. So even today, when I go to India, and why I say the gender imbalance is more pronounced, at least for me, it's more pronounced. And it's it's probably why I feel people talk on my face and to my face is because I had a, a trip to India, a business trip to India about two years back. And, you know, I'm no longer young in that category, right? You know, when I went, it was not it was not a direct saying on my face saying, oh, you're a woman and you're not supposed to be here. But there were a lot of those subtle reactions like, oh, can you go back to the hotel alone? You know, we should get a car for you and we should know the driver. So there is a lot of concern around safety. And I'm not necessarily saying concern is bad. But, you know, it's more like, oh, because you're a woman, now we need to think about all of this. If it was a man, we could have just organized whatever. You could have just taken an Uber and got got back to your hotel. So I think the gender imbalance is more pronounced because you don't have too many women. And of course, there is a societal uh, element to it. Now, why? I may not have felt that. I've never felt the gender uh, part when I was in uh, India, whereas I actually feel it more in the West, although it may not be that pronounced in that sense, is simply because it was still with people who looked like me. It was still a place that was known to me. It was still, as I said, you know, when I when I was talking to you about the power of anonymity, I still could actually box people. I could size people from where they came from, what they've studied, what they've done. I have an understanding of the background. So I never felt that was something that would play against me as long as I knew how to play the cards right. So a lot of things, a lot of those responsibility I was able to take, which completely changed when I moved to the West in terms of both. And I operate at the intersection of gender and race. So both put together, I just don't know how to play my cards because I can't size up. Everyone else is anonymous too. I cannot size people. I cannot judge people. I cannot, I cannot make a judgment based on which I can play my cards, right? So for me, in the West, it's more pronounced. Whereas if I would go back and I would say, take numbers, right? I'm I'm an engineer, so I've always worked with data and numbers. Take the numbers. I think it is quite pronounced in both parts of the world when it comes to gender. But how you feel it, how how it lands on you has a huge difference based on all other factors.
0: Got it. And do you think that work-life balance for working moms in the East is different from the West?
1: See, it's a complex question because I think across the world, independent of East to West, across the world, working moms bear the most brunt when it comes to both the house chores and, of course, then having to equally better perform at work. So I don't think there is any mercy for working moms anywhere in the world. But I think in the East, and I again, I'm going to talk more about India because that's my home country. I would have had grandparents, you know, if I wanted the weekend off, I would have had the grandparents where could I where I could drop off my kids and just take the weekend for myself. That's not a luxury I've had here, living in the West. You know, you, you run your life based on the daycare clock, Monday to Friday, and then come Friday, you just don't get a break because you don't have any family to support you. The weekend is as well, the childcare falls on you. So I think that is a clear distinction, at least for me, where I knew that if my son falls sick on a, especially when he was younger, if he falls sick on a Monday and I have a flight to catch, it's all on me or my husband that we will have to juggle between our schedules. We do not have a support system.
0: Yes. In my experience, also the support staff in India, one has the possibility and the luxury of having more support staff courtesy one point what numbers of billions (laughs) that we have and and a different way of working in life I guess do you think that your journey and its influences would have been different had you stayed on in India
1: definitely I think the experiences the journey the point where I've reached and again I'm I'm glad you mentioned the linear path you know if you look at it, it from a linear point of view it would have been definitely different I think what would not have been any different is I'm ambitious. I'm very much a career woman. I actually have dreams of my own. I'm a go-getter. I would have gone and got all of those things. But the path, the journey, the point there where I have landed now, everything would have been different.
0: Having lived in three continents, am I right, in 13 countries between the East and the West, where and what is home for you? So today, if you ask me, you know, really, Switzerland
1: is home for me. And this is a feeling that I get. And I was just back in India in August. And when I came back, you know, I actually felt when we were landing in Zurich, I actually felt, oh, my God, we are home. This is a feeling I would have had in the reverse when I would land in India, maybe, you know, take 15 years back when I would land in India in my hometown. So Kochi is always the airport that I uh, fly to. And that used to be always home. So when I would land in Kochi, like, let's say 15 years back, I would feel, oh my God, I'm home. And that feeling is completely changed. And it's a very simple uh, saying, right? The home is where the heart is. So my heart is here simply because this is where we have uh, built a base. My son has gone to the Swiss public school system. Friends are here, you know, and the support system we've literally built from scratch is here. Everything is familiar. So, you know, Uh, Even you walk into a supermarket, you know the milk that you buy, you know the vegetables that you buy, you know, it's all the familiarity. So, Switzerland is home for me now.
0: And do you consider yourself a global citizen?
1: See, and let's define what a global citizen is. So, I think uh, my definition of a global citizen is someone who still goes through an identity crisis. So, when you ask, you know, where, where home is, someone who could very immediately say, okay, this is home. This is someone who definitely feels that belonging. So for me, I have to still explain the Indian part. Uh, we still travel a lot, both from work and personal perspective. So we're very open to different cultures. And we know, and especially since we have uprooted ourselves multiple times, we know that, you know, what what that starting point looks like. So from a, and this is my definition of a global citizen, where you, you are not putting down your roots somewhere and saying, yes, this is my... This is where I'm putting my down my roots and this is going to be my entire life. You know, the rest of my entire life is going to be here and I'm just going to live in that. And I don't mean to say it as a cocoon or anything, but just in the little world, I'm not open to anything else. So I think for me, I would definitely think of myself as a global citizen simply because I'm still open to more things. I'm still open to. You know, and just to give an example, there is something called planted chicken, right? And there is uh, there is this whole revolution around uh, the whole vegetarian part of the cuisine. And, you know, these are things that I would definitely love to try out and not limiting myself to my roots, so to say. So this is actually my definition of being global. You are just open to new ideas, new thinking, new ways of life and embracing new things that serves you.
0: Do you still feel at times that you don't belong? You've done a lot of uh, adjusting, analysis, inside, outside, integration, and all of that in different parts. And now in Switzerland, for how long are you there in Switzerland?
1: A little over 10 years.
0: Okay, so that, that's precisely the point. Now, you've, I'm sure when you came in, like you already said at times you didn't feel you belonged, now that you've gone through a whole process inside and outside, do you still at times feel that you don't belong?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I don't think there will be a point in time where I say, no, I have arrived and, you know, this is my stage and yes, I belong. And I think that sense of belongingness comes from multiple factors of being, again, accepted as who you are when people don't question you. So my husband and I, both of us have last, different last names when, you know, you don't have to explain things. That's when the sense of belonging comes, where people just accept you and nothing is weird anymore to anyone. So I think that sense of belonging is not there, but that sense of acceptance is there.
0: What is your lived-in definition of diversity and inclusion? I say lived-in because things are theoretical till the time they are inside you and you've lived it. So therefore, your definition, your evolved definition
1: so see, my, uh, I, I don't know if it's an evolved definition, but my definition of, and I always say, you know, inclusion has to come before diversity. Diversity is just a number. Like we walk into a room, we can see, you know, the number of men and women. We can see race when you walk in. So there are a lot of things that the eye catches. In diversity, like there are also a lot of things that the eye cannot catch. So inclusion has to come first. And in terms of inclusion, you know, it is actually the acceptance. And first that has to come the acceptance that everyone is different and everyone is an individual. So you can't put people in a box and it's it's exactly how you said, you know, you're a square peg and then you're trying to fit into a round hole. So if you actually look at people as these pegs or cookies or cookie cutters, whatever is the analogy to that. You actually would assume or worst when it comes to organizations is you actually look at these numbers on a spreadsheet. So these are people that we are talking about, whether it is like, you know, 25,000 people in an organization or 300,000 people in an organization. These are individuals and each individuals have a different intersection of multiple things. So their experiences are different so the whatever emotions whatever feelings whatever perspectives that they bring skills that they bring anything that they bring to the workplace or or in a social setting is very different so i think the first and foremost is to actually understand individuals as ind- individuals so that's the first part of any dni journey and then second of course comes inclusion and then last is you know it's just number diversity is number so my lived experience of inclusion or lack lack of inclusion, I would say, is definitely at the intersection of gender and race. And why I say gender and race is because there is a stereotype that is associated with gender. The most uh, most I have uh, come come across when it comes to gender stereotypes, even today, is you know everyone asks me, your husband works, why should you work? And this is something that I've never got my head around, and it's it's independent of east or west. Like as recent as about six months back. There was a very, uh, very senior person who actually told me, you know, I was leaving my job. And I said, you know, I decided to leave my job and I had to communicate to everyone. And this is a very senior uh, individual uh, with uh, 30 plus years of experience who comes and says, yeah, you know, you can afford to do that because your husband works. I think that's, that's something that is associated with gender that, you know, when you work, it's always something that you do as a hobby. So even when I've had to negotiate uh, my salary, it is always like, oh, your husband works. So, you know, you can take, I don't know, 10% less. Why are you negotiating? Why are you such a difficult negotiator? No, I'm actually asking for what I'm doing, not what my husband is doing. So I would negotiate. So I think this is a gender part that independent of East to West, uh, of course, I have lived it and I still leave it. As I said, it's a, I'm stating an example that is just six months ago. Then, of course, in the West, there is the other intersection that I come from, which is the race. And, you know, when you have time, uh, sometimes just just listen to my TEDx as well, where I speak about when we moved to Switzerland, there was always this perception that we have come here as refugees. We are fleeing our country. And, you know, for for that simple reason, both the socio and economic part of that. So there are, there are uh, mothers from my um, son's kindergarten who have actually given me old clothes, half-used groceries, just to support me. And probably in a very positive intention in that sense, but that was the intersection of race. So I think there is a, my lived experience is always at the intersection of gender and race. And uh, especially in the corporate uh, world, you know, when you are Asian, your, the general stereotype is you keep your head down, you do your job, don't raise your head, don't raise your voice, don't ask for things. You know, you just come, do your job. You're just invisible and just leave. And... As you can see, I'm not invisible. I don't actually accept the chair that's given to me. I like to ask for the seats that I like. I actually speak up. I speak up for the right things. So there is a imbalance in that stereotypical image that an Asian woman brings in and who I am that also creates conflict. So my lived experience, both at the social and professional level, is definitely at the intersection of gender and race.
0: Yeah, because of your journey, you, you go through it. That's the reason I had asked that and in which country or place though again it will be a smaller question because uh, it could be dependent on the organization and the sphere one has however again your lived an experience in your opinion in which country or place is inclusion more inclusive
1: scandinavia for sure i think scandinavia in general is more inclusive when it comes to both gender or race. So I've worked, as I said, I've worked in uh, Sweden, very quite inclusive. I have a board role in uh, Denmark, very inclusive. So what also you feel is, especially in, in a social setting is, you don't feel unwelcome. Organizations always have a corporate element attached to it. But despite that, you can actually see the difference in the corporate world as well. Because you know organizations are only a reflection of society. If at a social level, You're more inclusive. Organizations in those countries will be more inclusive. So I would definitely rank Scandinavia very much at the top in terms of inclusion.
0: Wonderful. That's an eye opener, actually. And in the era of fast melting borders, since a decade, I find it since a decade, it's like that. The borders are melting so fast. Transformation is way beyond levels one would have ever thought or seen in decades before. What is your observation and experience of? these transformations happening in the East and the West?
1: See, uh, I think the borders, the physical borders are falling very fast. You're absolutely right. And uh, from thanks to internet and I would say more social media, I think there is definitely more awareness. So, you know, if you would uh, ask my parents, and it's the same, right? So we talk about the stereotypes that the Westerners have about Easterners, and it's the same, the, what the stereotypes Easterners have around the Westerners. So if you'd ask the generation of my parents, they would have told you, you know, what's the stereotype of Westerners? They never stay married with the same person. They're all alcoholics. They would, um, what's the right word, you know, they they party and they just, they live a very irresponsible life. Thanks to Hollywood movies, partly I would say, uh, this is a stereotype that Uh, again, my parents' generation would have had about the West. And similarly, a lot of uh, stereotypes, the West has bought the East. And with the fast, as you rightly said, the fast um, melting down of the physical barriers and thanks to, again, social media and the internet age, there is more awareness. So I think the next generation, probably not our generation, but the generation of our children are definitely more open to different cultures they definitely want to know more they know more again because they are already exposed even if not physically they are already exposed to different cultures in a more authentic way so it's not just the hollywood movies right it's it's actually they are exposed in a more authentic way because people from those countries are actually talking about those cultures so i do feel that there is more awareness that is created now how all of this will turn out in the real world is when we'll only know that when this generation actually becomes adults like us So, how do they deal with it? See, biases, I always say this biases are not bad or stereotypes are not bad. If you take a decision based on those biases or stereotypes, that's bad. So, the good thing is that this generation doesn't have so many of those biases. So, it remains to be seen how they are actually taking advantage of that, that they don't have so many of those mental models or biases in terms of decision making. So, that remains to be seen.
0: When you look back on your life, what or who do you think were the biggest influences?
1: Uh, my husband. So he's <laughs> and why why I say as an influence both in terms, and I'm so glad I'm married to him, as in I have him for myself. I think he's one of those people who has taught me to look at things in a always in a different perspective. So I I, I I've not been someone who has been, and even today, you know, if I really think about it, if I compare me to my husband. I think he has a much broader perspective of things. I tend to think nar- more narrowly than him. And before we were together, I would say it was even narrower. And he has just helped me open up my perspective. So, And I think he is also my teacher for empathy because every story has multiple angles. So when I think of a story or I think of a situation, I tend to think very linear because that's my point of view. So I tend to think of it from my angle. And he's someone who influences me on a daily basis to think about it from multiple angles because he's able to see those perspectives. So he has had the biggest influence in my life. And you know I always say this, my best career decision had nothing to do with career. Actually, it was proposing to him. So it's actually, we were college sweethearts or college friends eventually call it sweethearts but actually asking him this was a game changer personally for sure but also from a professional point of view
0: wonderful and um, I hope he's listening somewhere right now or he'll listen later but you said it like this you don't even have to think so I'm very very happy for you that's a blessing That's a beautiful blessing, I must say. What would you like to leave as a parting message for the listeners? See,
1: what I would like to leave as a parting message is, I think we focus a lot on learning. And, you know, we talk about growth mindset. We talk about curiosity. We talk about lifelong learning. I think in that learning process, don't forget to unlearn. Because you need to make room for new things. The only way you can make room for new things is is by unlearning. And for me, as I said, the journey from the East to West, and probably, you know, if ever I move back to the East, from West to East, what I've been able to grow as a person is, is, yes, the learnings have been important, but it's also the unlearning. So start being very deliberate about it to see what are the things that doesn't serve in your life and start unlearning and unshedding that. That's what will truly take you to the next level.
0: And here comes that word again unlearning between the east and the west not only in terms of geographical location or time now what does that really mean i thought we already scaled the mountain but obviously it was not explored enough let's find out from the lady whose life sums up learning and unlearning reshma is somebody who has done a lot of inner engineering And I cannot let her go without sharing her precious results with all of you today. Then I'll have to ask you one question now, now that you said that. (laughs) So unlearning, I find that actually a very important word, even more than the learning, because unlearning is a very conscious effort. In, In your whole journey, in the landscape of your life, Can you think of one thing that you had to unlearn or you consciously decided to unlearn from the East and the West or between the East and the West?
1: Absolutely. And the one thing that really, uh, you know, comes to me without even a a nanosecond of thinking is, so one of the things that I think society, at least where I grew up, society conditions you to think and that's how you learn uh, or build your mental models is, Always define your next step based on your last step. So it's probably what you call as a linear path. So you've taken a step and you you keep building on that. You never actually think about, so even when you talk about careers, you talk about uh, educational qualifications, you do a bachelor's, you finish school, you go do a bachelor's and then you do a master's and then probably an MBA. You always tend to think about it as a step on top of a step or step ahead of a step. You're never taught to think laterally. And I think for me, this was a huge unlearning that I had to do. And a lot of my corporate success has come from thinking laterally. So it's not about, you know, you become a director, you become a VP or a SVP and then whatever, president or whatever. No, it's not been about that, which is what originally I was taught to think. So that's my learning. So actually to think laterally. So I studied civil engineering, dropped it, went into completely strategic consulting, dropped it, did something very much different, went into engineering, back into engineering, then moved into whole digital transformation. So a lot of lateral moments. So this has been only possible because of being able to unlearn what again as a society I think we are taught that.
0: I've been able to unlearn that. But that leads me to another question. Because See, you did that. You unlearned that. You went on a lateral thing. Did the people around you do that? Did society, let's say now you were in the West or wherever, be it in the East or the West, how was their acceptance of your moving laterally? Okay, here I'm. Um, point here, I'm not going from point one to point two here, but I would like to go from one to one X or some other point how was that accepted in the organizations that you moved to so i think this is a second
1: unlearning that i've had to do because it's not about anybody's acceptance of you it's your acceptance of yourself and it's your belief that you can do it because many times you also take a step back which is not accepted by the society see when you when you have success on success there are a lot of people who come and want to be friends with you want to support you when you have a failure after a success and i in my world, I don't call it failure. It's probably a step back. But from a society's point of view, when you have had a failure, you you also see people falling off, right? Nobody wants to be friends with you. So I think this is an unlearning that I had to do because, you know, earlier it was all about people accepting me. And I think that's an unlearning that I've done. It's about me accepting me. It's about me believing in myself. It's about me choosing my path. It's about my belief that I, ha- I can move forward and I will move forward independent of who supports me or not. And that's a huge unlearning. That that takes a lot of mental stamina to do that. And I'm genuinely happy that I've been able to do that. So even now, when I left my job about six months uh, back, it was, if you look at it from a social standpoint, yes, it's a a step back or failure or however you want to call it. But I actually don't care about what the society or anybody else thinks. I know why I did it and I know what I'm going to do. It's a path that I have to chart on my own and a lot of strength is in me to do that and I will do it. So it's me accepting myself. So that's an unlearning as well. So I don't actually wait for anyone else's acceptance of me.
0: Then two more questions. Because this is big and this is important for you, me and everybody. Can you share two things? One any place where you called, uh, where you labeled um, in your mind as a step back, forget other people. I'm a bit like you there because the job is first inside and then outside. <laughs> so, several
1: times I have, I feel I've taken a step back. So, you know, when I was leaving the civil engineering world, I was actually uh, heading a team, heading a department. So, and I was on a very much a growth path. I left that and took a step back as a consultant. So in the managing management world, consultants is actually quite low in the hierarchy, vertical hierarchy. I actually took on the role as a consultant because I wanted to switch to whole consulting career. This was a step back. This was very early on. I actually took a step back when I wanted to Shift from again what I was doing in the operational field into the digital transformation space because again if I wanted to continue on the vertical hierarchy I would have had to start with the operational part the whole operations I took a step back now early this year again when I left I would consider that in a in a societal definition that is a step back but then you know post summer it has opened up so many more opportunities that is actually a step forward so you take a step back so these are step backs I would actually in my world of definition, these are step backs. Again, from a societal point of view, clearly, yes, because you're, you only look at the vertical growth. You don't look at the lateral part or you don't look that you've taken a step back to go a, to maybe two steps forward.
0: But then how did you go from the operational world to the digital world or the consulting to the digital one? Because it was a very different one. So how did you explain it to the place where you are going? So, see, I think it's about your story. And I always
1: say, you know, storytelling is a powerful skill that people undermine and underestimate. So when I wanted to leave the civil engineering world and move into the consulting, which was the hardest in my view, because, you know, you you are... And think about it. I was a construction side engineer. And then you want to move into something that is as coveted as a strategy consulting, which only, you know, you go out of top B schools and then you directly go into that. I didn't do that. I finished my B school and I didn't go there. So it was a story in seven years I spent in the construction world. And that is a shift that was actually the hardest for me. And that happened because there were people I I could convince that I could add value. So the only thing that happened, and this is where the step back comes in. So ideally, with seven years of experience, you in a management consulting world, you go as a principal or a project leader. I was willing to take a step back and said, you know, yes, they don't. They can't bet on me because they don't know if I will actually perform. I'm happy to take the role of a consultant. And then, you know, I, I, I knew I could prove myself. I, I will definitely get on to the next level. So it's really about one being very convinced about your own story because if you falter, people are not going to believe you, right? Because you are not sure of yourself. So I've been always sure of myself in that sense. Yes, this is a step I want to take. Second, it's actually finding people who believe you. And this is a, you know, this is what's a great part of living in India. I always believe that, you know, if one or two or three or four people say no, it's okay because you still have 1.5 billion people to convince. So why would you give up four people don't like your story and say, listen, I can't hire you because you're coming from construction sites into management consulting, I can't hire you. It's only the fourth person. There's still 1.5 billion people out there. So go find or go knock on those doors to actually find people who believe in you. And I can tell you, there are people who will believe you.
0: Those are the people that you need to stick with and take on the next step. That's very interesting. Thanks for sharing that because, very concrete example like that, as you rightly said yourself, storytelling is a very powerful tool. By sharing our journeys and your journey, uh, you are actually sharing a tool for other people who also might be thinking in a linear way but would like to, somewhere subconsciously, do a lateral. So it probably can give a nudge to them to think a little more openly. So thank you for sharing that. That was wonderful. And thank you for sharing yourself with us today, Reshma. I wish you all the best to scale more mountains and to cross more oceans. That's been wonderful.
1: Thank you so much. And you know, as in IIT, they would say, you know, you can move the mountains and you can stop the rivers. So all the buses were named after the mountains because you can move the mountains and all the hostels were named after the rivers because you can stop the rivers. So this is, this has been my philosophy in life as well. And as I said, it's a double honor to be here, Minu. Uh,
0: thanks so much for having me. Oh, that was even a more beautiful parting message. I had asked for one, now you've given me that order of two. Now that was wonderful what you just said, a parting shot, my dear. Thank you. Thank you. For listening to the series between the east and the west do subscribe to the channels mentioned on the side in case of course you liked what you had i am Meenu Gupta the host of the series and i'll be looking forward to your comments we love feedback thank you once again namaste and bye bye